Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege this week to welcome to Talk Nation Radio William Geimer, who is an author, a peace activist, a veteran of the U.S. 82nd Airborne Division, and a professor emeritus at Washington and Lee University here in Virginia. After resigning his commission in opposition to the war on Vietnam, he represented conscientious objectors and advised peace groups near Fort Bragg, North Carolina, once representing Jane Fonda, Dick Gregory, and Donald Sutherland in negotiations with the police. A Canadian citizen, Bill Geimer lives with his wife near Victoria, British Columbia, where he is a member of the Vancouver Island Peace and Disarmament Network. He is also the author of a terrific book we will be talking about, Canada, The Case for Staying Out of Other People's Wars. Bill Geimer also serves as an advisor on policy issues of peace and war to Elizabeth May, member of parliament and leader of the Green Party of Canada, and he has been kind enough to join the Speakers Bureau for World Beyond War. Uh, Bill Geimer, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be invited, David. Uh, Thanks for coming on. I know that you, like uh, many people, uh, have a cold or some kind of illness uh, this time of year. I appreciate you doing the show. Um, Didn't Canada lead the way on the Landmines Treaty? Don't U.S. slaves and dissenters and conscientious objectors flee to Canada? Didn't Robin Williams say that Canada was a nice apartment above a meth lab? Uh, is, Is Canada a land of peace or a a weapons dealer and warmonger extraordinaire? Well, the answer to that is uh, is a bit complicated. All the things that you have mentioned uh, are true of Canada, and I'm very proud of my adopted country uh, for them. Uh, But uh, there is a struggle going on, as uh, as there is everywhere. Uh, and we have uh, the uh, distinct honor of, as Pierre Trudeau said, living next door to an elephant. And he said, if the elephant rolls over, then we're toast. Uh, so, and Canada has been drawn many, many times uh, into uh, uh, the wars of the UK first and then the US when she had no business being there. And many other times, unknown to a lot of Canadians, has been complicit. Uh, in uh, U.S. Uh, military adventures uh, like uh, uh, Iraq uh, and Vietnam, where we did not send actually send troops. So uh, overall, it's a it's a very good place to be, uh, and I'm proud of many things. But we are far far from uh, from a peaceful place. What, tell us a little bit of the, about this history of first you know, fighting British wars uh, with the British and then fighting U.S. wars. I think you start in the book with uh, the Boer War. Yeah. Well, I, what I, what I uh, had found, and, and I, I was thinking about this before the uh, uh, interview here, David, is uh, why would your mainly American uh, listeners want to uh, go to Amazon or Kindle, et cetera, and buy a book called Canada, The Case for Staying Out of Other People's Wars? Uh, and uh, one thought uh, about why they might want to do that came to me from your uh, review. There is a possibility, especially given the current U.S. regime, uh, 
that this idea of staying out of U.S. wars, uh, of a nation declaring the right to make its own decisions, just might catch on. Uh, and further to that, the book traces recurring factors and themes that appear again and again in every Canadian war from 1899, as you say, to the present. Uh, and they are the same factors that appear for the same reasons uh, in U.S. Uh, uh, wars. Uh, and many of the factors are war-promoting. That is, they push us towards participation in war in general. Uh, and, and these factors include the marriage of uh, capitalism and imperialism, by, by whatever name, I mean, uh, capitalism may morph into international business uh, interest and imperialism into mandates and spheres of interest or whatever, but uh, those two uh, have a rocky relationship at times, uh, but they never divorce. And uh, another factor is, prop a very important factor that I want to mention a little bit later is uh, propaganda and the failure of journalism. Uh, another factor, sadly, is organized religion. Uh, and because we, we never have a rational conversation about these factors uh, and weigh them in the costs and benefits of the wars, uh, we never have a rational conversation about them between wars. They push us into the next one. Uh, yeah. And there, there, are, there are also recurring factors uh, that should push us away from war that appear in all of Canada's wars, and the same, I think, is true for the U.S. And they include uh, horror and the senseless military deaths, uh, human rights violations and civilian deaths, and racism. Uh, but the war-provoking factors keep our attention diverted from these factors. Uh, and I guess in some, in both countries, I think we need to talk. We need to talk with one another. Uh, within within Canada and uh, and within the U.S., uh, we need to have conversations that we have not had in the past. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It, it seems to me that in the United States, because of all the U.S. war making for decades, all the invasions, the the bases in other people's countries, all the bombing campaigns and the drones in the skies, you've got these anti-U.S. terrorist networks. You've got these leaders uh, burning U.S. flags and denouncing the United States. And and central to the propaganda for any new war in the United States is this idea that it's defensive, that evil forces are going to attack the United States. Never mind if it was past wars that provoked that animosity. This is the, the, the sales pitch, is that we need a war to defend ourselves. They, they add other, you know, pitches, they, they, the claims of humanitarian philanthropic benefits from the wars and so forth, but they've never been able to sell a war without pitching it as defending the United States against those who want to come and invade our homes. Uh, I, I'm not sure, I, I, I'm very curious how wars are sold in Canada because there aren't really anti-Canadian terrorist networks around the world. Uh, there aren't, you know, there isn't the same uh, grain of truth to hang this, this claim on that Canada is under attack. How, how are the wars sold in Canada? Are they sold as defensive? Well, that's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting, and the answer to that uh, is yes. Uh, what, uh, what, small amount of uh, uh, 
person-to-person violence, uh, perhaps motivated by uh, what are called uh, terrorists. Uh, we have had a few of those in Canada, very, very few, and they are, of course, exaggerated and uh, uh, and ignore the the fact that what is called terrorism is really sophisticated crime, which needs sophisticated law enforcement, not you know fighter jets and uh, drones and bombs to produce more terrorists. Right. Uh, so we do uh, exaggerate what minimal threat there is. Uh, in Canada, but the factor that we have, and it's the, and it's the, the another reason for the, the driving factor in this book, uh, is that well, more or less, whatever the U.S. says, we sort of have to go along with. Uh, we know it's not defensive. I mean, you can talk to Canadians; they they're in, they're more they're more or less indifferent. They've got you know kids to feed and get to hockey practice and and whatever, uh, but when they do. Uh, uh, turn their mind uh, to the subject. Uh, they are. They know that this is not a matter of defense. Uh, it, it never has been for Canada, and it certainly is not is not now. But it's 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 the U.S. I mean, Canada went into Afghanistan because, and and this is uh, on the record <laughs> in the book uh, because uh, we owed the U.S. one for not going to uh, to. Uh, Iraq, so uh, it's it's been that kind of dynamic. Wait, uh, wait, wait. If, that, if that sells that sells the wars, it, it's it, kind of a a resignation uh, that uh, we sort of have to do what the big boy wants. But why can you go into into why? Because Canada fails to join in one massive crime, uh, it's obliged to join in another one. How does that logic work? Well, in there are. Uh, a couple of things that do drive uh, Canada toward it, that that are also recurring factors that I that I sort of designate as almost uniquely Canadian war promoting. One is a longing for recognition. Uh, Canada really wants to be recognized uh, in the world, and unfortunately, uh, uh, in the past twenty years, has abandoned. The one thing that can uh, get legitimate recognition, and that is her skill in peacekeeping and diplomacy. Uh, but longing for recognition is a theme that goes through the whole uh, the whole story of, of Canada's wars. Uh, and the other is military skill and bravery, despite appallingly poor leadership. When you have to work for somebody else as an ordinary soldier, and you get treated like crap and you do well anyway, that inspires national pride. We are getting ready in 2017 here to uh, uh, mark the uh, 100th anniversary of the Canadian victory at Vimy Ridge uh, in, in the, uh, the Great War, World War One, as it's known in the U.S., and there's already just an orgy of, uh, of publicity about how this is how Canada came of age and really got noticed on the world stage. In that horror show, in that massive horror show, is what we point to is where we came of age, or that's the standard narrative anyway. 
Yeah, I, I, w- I would give Canada enormous credit for having uh, birthed itself without a violent revolution against uh, England, but uh, I, I guess that would be a different, uh, a, a different origin story. Uh, we, we have the privilege of speaking with William Geimer, whose book is Canada, The Case for Staying Out of Other People's Wars. Uh, what about, you mentioned a couple topics you wanted to get to. What about propaganda and the failure of of journalism that is that is something that is really close to my heart from my own from my own work uh the book and other work and from my military experience uh i want to refer to two examples of of those factors at work uh your books actually make you make clear that Embedded in the operation of these factors, uh, propaganda and, uh, uh, and the failure of journalism and information control, are some pretty powerful lies. Uh, and one of them is that the way, uh, just about the only way, to serve one's country is to join the armed forces. Uh, and the lie underpinning that lie is the notion that recruits are ready to fight for freedom and democracy or to keep us safe. Uh, well, that's nonsense. Uh, but the ironic thing that I see about these lies is that they are not even the reason kids join up. These lies are directed at the general public for the benefit of arms merchants and, and power seekers. Uh, and my own study of uh, my study of Canada's wars and my own military experience shows that very very few people joined up for patriotic reasons uh, peer pressure boredom thirst for adventure uh, the need for three hots and a cot uh, and most of all ignorance of the reality to come were far more powerful uh, drivers of, of, of recruitment and uh, my story is the same as as those that I found uh, in the Canadian uh, war story. Uh, I came from a military family. My father saw action in the Ardennes Forest and the Poussin perimeter. And when I graduated from college, I had no idea uh, what I wanted to do with my life, uh, having been required to uh, take two years of ROTC at a land-grant college, uh, I went on to a final two years, and although I want to make it clear I would never be much of a soldier, I was named a distinguished military graduate and offered a regular Army commission. Uh, I was married, and I needed the money, uh, and I knew something of military life, and I really had nothing else to do, uh, so I took it. Yeah. Uh, and I served then, having, having, that's, that's why I joined up. Uh, and I served in an armored unit on the border with what was then East Germany, only months after the Berlin Wall went up. And Cold War tensions were high, and my unit sat aside, sat astride the Fulda Gap, which was a historic invasion route. And as I look back on that, uh, I see regularly in the middle of the night we were called out uh, to rumble up to our alert positions, uh, uh, our battle positions. And this is the this is the truth. My tanks were equipped with a 105 millimeter howitzer, a 7.62 millimeter machine gun, and my own 50 caliber machine gun. And here's the thing: 
not once in all my time there under those Cold War conditions did I give a single thought to what any of those weapons would do to a human body. I promise you I did not and that I was not alone. We did not consider the pros and cons of killing and then decide for our own reasons that, well, doing it is necessary to preserve freedom of dem- and democracy or, or, or for whatever. We just didn't think about it at all. And kids don't think about it at all today, and they are very much kept uh, from thinking about it. Yeah. The campaign to hide from recruits, the reality of what they're getting into is more intense and more sophisticated than it was in my day even. I mean, the, when the Pentagon pays the NFL to pay tribute to itself, uh, then things have really gotten uh, sophisticated. So, so my advice to young people is don't enlist, uh, at least without thinking. Go through a thought process that, that I didn't go through and that so many people from from the Boer War to the present in Canada, never went, never went through. Very, uh, very good advice. Uh, I, I, I wonder if you could touch on, uh, with time we have left, if you could touch on the topic of religion that you brought up earlier as another factor in, in producing war. And, and, and we should make clear that your account of being in the military, that was the U.S. military, not the Canadian. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah, I, it's, uh, uh, it's certainly not confined, organized religion's part in promoting uh, wars is not confined to, pardon me, uh, is not confined to Christianity, but uh, if, if it's Western wars that we're, Western participation in wars that we're concerned with, it is organized Christianity. And, uh, Organized Christianity over the course of Canada's wars has gone from outright cheerleader, uh, in which uh, a bishop uh, urged his his congregation uh, from the pulpit to uh, kill all the Germans, including the ones who had, who were wounded, including the ones who had helped uh, uh, their uh, fellow soldiers and helped out Canadians. Uh, kill them all and let God sort it out was the official. Uh, language uh, for a while in the Great War, uh, but the role of of the church has really been just to shut up when a war is is imminent. They have there is a, they develop a just war doctrine that has all kinds of criteria, and theologians go back and forth over it. But the bottom line is that there never has been an unjust war uh, on behalf of the country where uh, the uh, the bishops and priests and ministers are. So uh, their job is to be, uh, current job is to be quiet, and they certainly are. Yeah. What if, just to, to challenge the premise of your excellent book, which I highly recommend, Canada, The Case for Staying Out of Other People's Wars, would it be moral and legal and practical and good and acceptable if Canada fought its own wars rather than somebody else's wars? Uh, and and what about this this doctrine that I refer to as R2PBS and others uh, refer to yeah. simply as R2P? I mean, yeah. are are you are you still yourself under the belief that there can be uh, a just war at least somehow in theory? This is not a war. Not a war, and this. Uh, I hope we. I hope we have time for this. I'm going to try. To, I'm going to try to do it because I, uh, uh, 
the doctrine of responsibility to protect is is a really troublesome matter given all of the suffering and death and and human rights violations of civilians uh, across the world today, and it really makes you want to do something. Uh, it's a it's another doctrine that uh, that the U.S. has poisoned, uh, as in Libya, for example, they got authority to go in and help the civilians under responsibility to protect, and then they just trashed the whole thing and had regime change and left Libya in worse shape than it was before. Uh, but uh, the the utility at all of responsibility to protect is the only instance where uh, I see an armed force uh, intervening uh, for purely humanitarian, not regime change uh, reasons, and acting only in what is realistically uh, what is real self-defense, not not the twisted uh, version of self-defense that you see uh, from Western countries and Israel and others today. Uh, but a uh, a uh, a real concept of, uh, of of acting violently only when there is an imminent threat of uh, death or bodily harm uh, as a last resort to present prevent you from keeping uh, uh, from doing your humanitarian mission. It's purely. Uh, justifiable, if at all, and I admit it's a very difficult subject for me. Uh, difficult. It's it, it, well. Let's let's get practical. Can you give an example of when this was done? Uh, of when of when RTP was used properly? No. No. Uh, that not not until we return to uh, purely humanitarian motivation and strict. The strictest limitations of self-defense uh, is RTP an excuse for uh, or a justification for an intervention. You you propose uh, in the book that there should be no mission undertaken that will result in the killing of a single civilian. Uh, yeah. Can you d- describe for me an R2P action with an armed force that would not risk killing a single civilian? Uh, what that would look like? Well, I think what I said, I hope what I said, was that if you are going to undertake a military operation and it and there's a risk that it will kill civilians, don't undertake the operation. So your question is a fair one, although that is not exactly the context that I was speaking of uh, when, I, when I wrote that uh, in the book. So I, I would say if our two... Our, if right responsibility to protect is to have any viability, and I, I would like to see it have that just because my heart goes out to civilians, as so many uh, do, then it would have to be uh, that the intervening force uh, never uh, undertakes an operation that would put civilians uh, at risk. Uh, it only uh, goes in to provide humanitarian assistance and trusts uh, that it would not be uh, attacked. If it was attacked, then it responds only uh, militarily. I should mention one other thing, too, that, that is a part of this, and that is we tend to go to the extremes and, and talk about, well, what if we have an extreme situation, and is there any circumstance uh, where we can have violence or whatever? But there's a whole trove of experience, and Canadians have been involved in a lot of it, of civilian 
interventions, civilian nonviolent interventions that really work better than all military inventions and interventions, including responsibility to protect. So to some extent, uh, I have to say that your question is a good one, uh, but to some extent, hypothetical questions get hypothetical answers. I haven't seen uh, a proper RTP intervention yet. Well, I agree with you. I haven't seen one, and I can't imagine one. And I, I agree with your excellent point that uh, there are other ways uh, to quote unquote intervene, that is, to act in foreign relations that don't involve armed forces that actually work uh, and work more consistently and more effectively. So that when we hear this cry to do something, you know, in, yeah. in U.S. media, do something means bomb somebody, kill somebody, invade somebody. Where in ordinary English, do something means do something, and there are many, many things you can do to help people, including helping people, <laughs> providing people with, with food and uh, water and medicine and housing, uh, rather than bombing them. So, I mean, isn't this notion of this, this, this moral persuasion to do something uh, a bit of propaganda itself when do something has been twisted to mean bomb somebody? No, I, I completely agree. And, and I, I, uh, I think uh, one of the things I've learned in agonizing over this that, I didn't, that it didn't come across uh, uh, that I do want to mention is there is an excellent work by uh, Maria Stefan and Erica Chenoweth called Why Civil Resistance Works, The Strategic Logic of Nonviolent Conflict, uh, which is a 2011 uh, publication that has really uh, opened my mind to possibilities of uh, nonviolent intervention that I just simply, from my experience and background, was, was not aware of. Yeah, discussed by Erica Chenoweth on this program. So look oh, really? through the look through the archives of TalkNationRadio.org. Uh, we've we've got just a couple minutes left. Uh, I, I think your earlier point uh, was one full of potential that that maybe uh, this is a moment in which Canadians can resist subservience to the U.S. military with the face of Donald Trump on it. Uh, is right. you know, is that right? Not, uh, uh, we're, there's, there are some other helpful signs, uh, too. Uh, very quickly, uh, I wish I had time to talk about NATO, but, uh, but NATO's uh, contravention of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty has uh, led by the and, and U.S. Uh, 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 driving that, has led most of the nations of the world uh, to uh, take the... Uh, the treaty seriously, uh, and beginning this month, negotiations to uh, halt nuclear weapons production and le and begin negotiations toward a complete ban. Uh, Where will Canada be on that? The world are, are doing that, and that is another glimmer of hope that nations may realize that uh, the American empire may well be on the decline, and it's time to start thinking for ourselves. Yeah, just 60 seconds left. I know negotiations starting on that treaty next week at the UN. What will Canada's position be? Well, uh, Canada was obstructing, uh, helping the U.S. try to keep people from joining the, uh, the uh, uh, negotiations, which was really uh, embarrassing. Uh, and uh, so it is still possible for Canada to, to sign on. 
uh, now that we have the new government in power for a year and has its ducks in order a little bit. So that's part of what we're doing here in the peace movement uh, in British Columbia and across Canada is urging Canada to get on the right side of this issue. It's a different, slightly different procedure, but there's still time for Canada to join. Well, one the way... Record, the record to date has not been good. One way people can help, spread around copies of this book, Canada, The Case for Staying Out of Other People's Wars by William Geimer. Uh, Bill Geimer, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. It's been my great pleasure, David, and thank you for all the work that you do. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a non-profit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.